Hi, and thanks for listening to Ask the Pastor. This is a segment of the West Hills podcast where you have the opportunity to ask and receive biblical answers to your questions from our lead pastor, Will Duvall. I'm your host, Brian Wells, and I'm really excited to dive into our question this week from Allison, who asks, Do people who die without ever hearing the gospel go to hell? Welcome back to Ask the Pastor with your pastor, Will Duvall. And this week's question comes to us from Allison, who asks, Do people who die without ever hearing the gospel go to hell? This is, of course, one of the most difficult, emotionally fraught questions that a Christian can ask. Uh, It just doesn't seem to sit right with us, this idea that some people, many people, according to the Joshua Project, 3.28 billion people, 42% of the world's population today still, are considered unreached peoples. They have little to no access to the gospel, so they very possibly have not even heard the name of Jesus. And it seems wrong to us, doesn't it, unjust, that someone could live 10 or 20, 70 or 80 years and never even hear the name of Jesus, and because of that, die and go straight to hell simply for being born in the wrong place in the world. It doesn't sit right with this because we have this emotion called compassion, mercy. And it's in us because we're made in God's image. The Bible tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is the source and the very definition of mercy and compassion. So we ask, how could he punish someone for not believing a message that they've never even had the chance to hear? Well, I should probably <clears throat> make the disclaimer right up front uh, on this particular issue that, that pers- personally I subscribe to a minority viewpoint on this topic within uh, the evangelical world. That's not a place that I like to be. There's uh, comfort and strength, I guess, in numbers and being in the majority, but at the same time, obviously we know that truth is not democratic, and so I guess I am just presumptuous enough to think that the majority of uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christians have misinterpreted what God's Word has to say on this particular topic. But before I even tell you where I disagree with the majority and why, let me be clear about uh, where we all agree, where we all Bible-believing Christians must agree Number one, we know without a doubt biblically that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we are thus deserving of hell. That's Romans chapter 3. In other words, God would be just to send every single one of us to hell. The only thing that none of us deserves is forgiveness, salvation, is heaven. And so when uh, when the question is framed in this way, you know, what happens to innocent people who die without ever hearing of Jesus, we should all respond to that question the same way, well, hypothetically, they would go to heaven. Be, be, but the problem is that there are no innocent people who die without the gospel because there are no innocent people, and that's absolutely true. Secondly, we know that a person must believe in Jesus in order to be saved from their sin. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. <coughs> Similarly, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so any notion of universalism, this idea that God wants all people to be saved, 
First uh, Timothy two four, and therefore he will, of course, save all people. Ultimately, uh, we we must reject that. The Bible is very clear that hell is a real place, and it's not empty. That people, many people, most people, in fact, will go to hell. That's Matthew seven fourteen. And I would go even further than that to not only rule out universalism, the hope that all people will ultimately be saved, but I would rule out the idea of inclusivism as well. Inclusivism is the idea that Jesus might save some people who've never even heard of him, that they're saved without even knowing it, that they have some sort of unconscious faith. I reject inclusivism on the basis of Romans chapter 10, where Paul uh, declares that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That doesn't really seem to leave the door open for an option of believing in Jesus, trusting in the gospel without even ever having heard the gospel, much less understood and accepted it. So I, I reject this idea of unconscious faith. So where does that leave us? If I have acknowledged that everyone deserves hell <clears throat> and only Jesus can save us, but many people have never even been introduced to Jesus, and I've also conceded that there's no such thing as unconsciously trusting in Jesus. Well, the majority of evangelicals conclude based on that, that therefore case closed. Uh, people who are ignorant of the gospel must go to hell. But I see one more possibility that I don't think the Bible rules out. Is it possible that someone who never has had the chance to accept or reject Jesus in this life, in this world, will have the chance to do so in the life to come before entering into whichever life, whether that's eternal condemnation or eternal paradise that they've been destined for. Might God, I'm asking the question, might God in his mercy allow a sick sinner the opportunity to meet the physician post-mortem and receive or refuse treatment before casting them off completely for eternity. Now, I see no reason, based on my understanding of the scriptures, to rule that possibility out biblically. Uh, most people who do, who reject this kind of afterlife evangelism possibility, if you want to call it that, they do so for two reasons, one biblical and one practical. So the biblical objection to the afterlife evangelism option, possibility, comes from Hebrews 9, verse 27. This is the most common, indeed, it's the only passage of Scripture I've ever heard cited in opposition to, to my uh, hypothetical possibility position here. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27 reads, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Now, most evangelicals will read that and say, see, the Bible makes it clear that you only get this one shot at life to receive Jesus. And if you don't, then it's clear. When you die, you immediately face God's judgment seat. And after that comes judgment is what it says. Now, 
My response to that would be twofold. Number one, the word immediately just isn't there. Uh, nothing about my hypothetically envisioned afterlife in which those who never had the chance to, to even hear the name of Jesus get a chance to hear the gospel post-mortem before they face eternal judgment. Nothing about that is at odds with the chronology of Hebrews 9.27, which simply says man dies once and after that comes the judgment. You know, there's nothing that rules out the possibility that between the two, between dying and, and the judgment that comes afterward, is between between the two, someone gets a chance to hear the gospel. Hebrews 9.27 doesn't rule out that possibility. And my second response is that if you read Hebrews 9.27 in context, that verse is not trying uh, to make a point about the immediacy or, or anything about the chronology of what happens to a person in the afterlife. That verse is using a person's singular death and subsequent singular shot at judgment as an analogy for Christ's singular sacrifice for sin and singular subsequent return to rescue the church, respectively. That is the point of Hebrews 9, 27 and, and verse 28. And so to build your whole view of how things must unfold in the afterlife around this verse seems uh, not only misguided, but um, out of context and really speculative and thin to me. The second problem, <clears throat> though, that most evangelicals have with the afterlife evangel evangelism possibility is less a biblical one. It's more just a practical one, namely that it would allegedly then demotivate the church's evangelistic zeal in this life. In other words, if we knew that someone was going to get the chance to hear about Jesus, possibly even personally meet Jesus after their death, then why would we bother raising a bunch of money to support and send missionaries? Or even more uh, personally, why would we give up our own comfortable lives and go become those missionaries and fly all over the world to the most remote, difficult, Christianity intolerant, dangerous places on earth, places like North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia. Why would we do that to preach the gospel? We should just let people die and hear it for themselves or, or meet Jesus personally face to face. Save the trip, save the money, save the trouble. Uh, David Platt, who I love, he's my favorite, favorite pastor and I agree with David Platt on almost every other doctrinal matter, I think, but Platt goes even further. He says, Going to unreached peoples would be the most unloving thing you could do in this scenario because if they still have a chance to get to heaven without you preaching to them, then why would you go and give them the opportunity to reject Jesus and go to hell? You're just putting them in eternal uh, jeopardy. And I've got three responses to this practical objection by um, what I might call the hardliner uh, uh, position on unreached peoples in the afterlife. So um, the first is that the afterlife I've envisioned is only hypothetical. I can't prove biblically that a person who never gets the chance to hear the gospel in this life will necessarily get the chance in the life to come. I will conclude this podcast episode by offering some additional evidence for that um, uh, from the Bible, why I think that, uh, that this possibility would not only be in keeping with the character and the mercy of God, but I think it's also in keeping with some of the hints that we find elsewhere in Scripture about the way that God works. Um, but it's, I, I admit, it's still just that. It's a hypothetical possibility. Uh, it, it's, it's 
still possible that I'm wrong and that the majority of my evangelical brothers and sisters are right and that that unreached person goes straight to hell when they die if they've never heard of Jesus. I hope they're wrong and I think that they should hope that they're wrong. If they have an ounce of compassion in their bodies, then they should hope and pray that they're wrong. Uh, but in the event that I'm wrong and because God would uh, truly be justified in sending every sinner to hell, I've already acknowledged that, then the church's great commission calling to go and make disciples of all nations and preach the gospel to every corner of creation, that is still essential. That is undeniably our calling from the Lord. It's our job as long as we are here on this earth, regardless of what happens uh, to those who don't get the opportunity to hear and, and what, regardless of what happens to them after this life. Our job in this life is to go and tell them. My second response to the question, why should we go and evangelize if God's going to take care of it in the afterlife anyway, is simply that God says so. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Acts 1, uh, God says, go and tell them the gospel. And when God says to do something, you don't ask questions about, well, what if we don't, what if we don't do it? You just do it. My third <clears throat> and maybe most significant reply, though, to those kinds of objections, practical objections about, you know, does it demotivate our evangelism from Platt and others uh, who, who question that is that they, in my mind then, they're really turning Jesus into nothing more than a get out of hell pass. You know, Jesus is, is, is just a get out of hell ticket. Like the only reason to tell someone about Jesus is to save them from hell. But Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. And he didn't specify that it was only in the life to come. In the afterlife, anyone who personally knows Jesus, whose life has been personally transformed by the power of the gospel, can testify to the fact that life with Jesus in this world, in this life, is infinitely better and richer and fuller and more meaningful than life without him. So why would I share Jesus with someone who might have the opportunity to hear about him after they die? Well, because I love them. And why would I want them to wait to start living life to the fullest? Like I, if I, I don't, I don't sit here and, and, you know, tell the youth ministers and the pastors and the, and the, the people in my life, my parents, the people who love me enough to, to share the gospel with me, like, well, gosh, why didn't you just wait until, I died and then I could have heard it straight from Jesus. Like why why would I why would they want me to waste my life? Why would they want me to waste 80 years that I've been 90 years however long I have put here on this earth to live for the Lord. And if I'm not doing that, I'm wasting my life. I'm I'm not living to, for the purpose God's created me for. We should want people to be able to live life to the fullest and live uh the the life that God desires for them in this life and not waste it. And so why would you want to wait to start that? Now, there's one other passage that I have to deal with in answering this question with my specific you know, position on the matter, and that's Romans chapter 1, which says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, many evangelicals will read that and say, see, all are without excuse. 
There's no excuse for failing to believe in God. No one can say they were truly unreached because we all perceive God's power and nature through his general revelation through creation. And I don't disagree with any of that. But the question at hand isn't whether or not someone is without excuse for failing to believe in God. The question is whether or not they have an excuse for not believing in the gospel. Not God's general revelation, not God's revelation of his preeminence through creation, or his revelation of our sin revealed through our consciences. That's Romans chapter 2. We've all been given the knowledge of of God's preeminence, Romans 1, and of our sin, Romans 2 through our conscience and creation. So we all know deep down that there's something wrong with us and that this life is about more than us. It's about God. But only some of us know God's solution for that sin problem in our hearts. That his name is Jesus and he died for our sins and we need to trust in him. That's God's specific revelation and not everyone has that revelation. And so I read the rest of Romans 1 not as referring to all of humanity in general, when Paul writes, you know, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And Paul goes on and on about their list of grievances and all their idolatry and unrighteousness. I read that as referring to a specific group of unreached peoples, who may not have rejected Jesus because they haven't heard of him, but they have rejected the creator God who they have perceived through creation. But that's a, that's a specific subset of all the unreached peoples in the world. I don't, I don't see any reason to lump every person who's never heard of Jesus into that category. And so you've got really got four categories of people. You've got people who've heard of Jesus and, and repented and trusted him. Then you've got people who've heard of Jesus and rejected him. I think what's clear, it's scripture's clear about what happens to those two groups of people. But then you've got people who've never heard of Jesus, and yet they've got general revelation, and they've darkened and hardened their hearts to that. And I think Romans 1 is clear what happens to those people. But I'm talking about a fourth category of person here. I'm responding to a specific fourth category of person, someone who's never heard of Jesus. They have a little bit of light. Uh, through creation, through their conscience, and they have actually responded to that little bit of light that they've received. Uh, To me, I'm not an inclusivist. I don't think that responding to general revelation can save you. I don't think that that person can be saved just because they have some vague sense of a creator because of a beautiful sunset. I don't think that can save a person. But I don't think that uh, being open to... to, uh, the possibility of, of God and that this is his world and I'm grateful to live in it and I should, I, there, I, my heart wants to worship this, this, this being that I want to know more about whatever and being drawn to him, but just simply not ever having been told the gospel. To me, I think that there are real people in that category for, uh, or at least they're hypothetically could be. And, um, and that, that I leave the, op- the door open to, uh, to God reaching those unreached peoples in the life to come. So again, that's a subset of all the the unreached peoples in the world. Not everyone is going to reject God, um, the God that they can know through general revelation and creation. Paul will go on a few verses later in Romans 1 to talk about God giving them up to their dishonorable passions like homosexuality 
Obviously, that doesn't apply to everyone. Obviously, not everyone, uh, you know, lusts with passion, women for women, men for men. Obviously, not everyone worships animals and some of the idolatry that he lays out there. And so I think Paul has a, in view here a specific subset of ungodly, unrighteous people who have already hardened and darkened their hearts to the, the light that God has revealed generally through general revelation. But I don't see a reason to lump all of humanity in with that. Now, if I might just turn the tables for a few minutes here toward the end and point out uh, at least one of the great weaknesses in the um, hardline position, the majority evangelical position on the topic, other than the fact that it automatically relegates the majority of people who have ever walked the planet to an eternity in hell, uh, and, and it seems to many of us to be at odds with God's mercy and his compassion, his character. But there's, <clears throat> there's an exception clause that these hardline evangelicals usually throw in that is worth us examining and questioning. And so I'll just let the hardliners speak for themselves. I'm going to quote an article from uh, the Gospel Coalition, one of my favorite resources, and from Pastor Matt Smethurst, who's otherwise one of my favorite um, evangelical authors today. But he wrote a piece back in 2016 entitled, What Happens to Those Who Never Hear the Gospel, where he outlines the hardline answer to the question, but he throws in a footnote at the end. You would miss it if you weren't reading super carefully, but I think it's intended as a loophole to make hardliners feel a little less bad about God's condemnation of those who don't know the gospel. But I think that by opening this loophole, the whole hardline stance is in jeopardy of unraveling. So Smethurst uh, writes, you know, he thinks, you know, they go to hell, um, is the gist of the article. But then in the footnote, he says, infants and those with mental disabilities that preclude processing didactic information are believed by most exclusivists to be in a separate category. Naturally incapable of exercising conscious faith, they cannot be included in the Romans 1 picture that of rebellious humanity, without excuse on the basis of the fact that they know God and yet actively suppress the truth. An infant uh, cannot do that. Uh, someone with mental disabilities cannot do that. And so he says, many exclusivists believe that God deals graciously with such non-sentient image bearers on the basis of Christ's work apart from personal faith. Now, two big problems with what he just said. For starters, babies and those with mental disabilities are not non-sentient image bearers. To be non-sentient is to be unconscious, and so he just misuses that word. But more substantively, secondly, his reason for giving babies and mentally disabled people a free pass, that God's grace covers them, is in his own words that they are, quote, naturally incapable of exercising conscious faith. Incapable of exercising conscious faith. But isn't that exactly the position that every unreached person finds him or herself in. They are incapable of exercising conscious faith. As Paul himself said in Romans 10, how can they believe in someone they've never heard of? They can't. They're incapable. One person is incapable because of their biology. Their brain can't process the information about sin and salvation. Another person is incapable because of their geography. They haven't heard the message. They live in the wrong part of the world. But they're both incapable of exercising conscious faith. And so I'm fine... If Smethurst wants to open that loophole, I just think if, he, if he's going to do it, he needs to be logically consistent and open that loophole even wider to include all those who are unable to respond to the gospel for whatever reason, whether biologically or geographically or whatever else. So, 
to conclude here and wrap up in the last couple minutes. Are there any reasons biblically to believe that maybe people will be given a chance to accept or reject Christ in the life to come if they aren't in this life before God assigns their eternal fate? Obviously, I've already cited his mercy. I believe it's in keeping with God's character. If he chooses to do that, I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying if if that's God's prerogative to do that, it would be in keeping seemingly with his mercy. I think there are other reasons biblically, though, and I'll just point out a couple quick ones. First one, Matthew 24, 14. Jesus declares this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So apparently at the end of time, when, before Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, Jesus is going to give everyone an opportunity to accept or reject him. The gospel must go to all nations, he says, before he's going to return and judge. So it seems to me there's a principle there, and it seems consistent that he would similarly give everyone an opportunity to accept or reject him pre-end times, pre-eschaton, before he judges them. Uh, second scripture, 1 Peter 3.19. This is an admittedly a really difficult esoteric verse about Jesus post-crucifixion going and, quote, proclaiming to the spirits in prison and without getting into all the intricacies and the rabbit hole of, of, of uh, this interpretation of this passage. One of the ways of interpreting that is to say that when Jesus uh, died, after he died, while he was, you know, in, in the grave, um, his body was in the grave for for three days, that Jesus' spirit went in the spirit to Sheol to proclaim the gospel to all those who had died before Jesus even was born, before he died on the cross, to deal with their sins, and that Jesus preached the gospel of his death for their sins uh, to them in Sheol. Now, if that happened, and if that's what Peter is pointing us to, then again, that would seem to be in keeping with this idea that God is trying to give everyone the chance to personally accept or reject the gospel before he assigns them their ultimate eternal fate, heaven or hell. Third passage, Mark 3, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, According to Jesus, the only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Again, we get into some gray area here. The hardliner might say, on the basis of Romans 1, that all those who die without having explicitly repented and come to saving faith in Christ have by definition blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that whatever bit of light God might have shown into their hearts to reveal himself to them, they have rejected him, they've darkened their hearts, they've sinned against that illuminating work of the Spirit. Again, I don't read Romans 1 as addressing all of humanity, and so I define blasphemy against the Holy Spirit more narrowly than that as rejecting the Spirit's illumination of the truth of one's sin and need for a Savior, Jesus. So for the unreached person who accepts that there is a God and who accepts that she or he needs God, but who doesn't really know God personally because they don't know Jesus personally, because they've never heard of Jesus. While that person is undoubtedly a sinner and God would be justified in sending them to hell, I do not understand that that person as having committed the unforgivable sin, which doesn't necessarily mean that that Jesus, just because he can forgive them, uh, doesn't mean he will forgive them. But to me, 
this idea of the unforgivable sin, uh, I really take to, to mean, you know, that, that that is when God has <laughs> convicted your, your, your heart and shown you your need for Jesus specifically, and you've rejected him. So if they haven't done that. Um, I, I don't rule out the possibility that God forgives that sin, if not in this life, in the life to come. So lastly, last passage, John 12, 48, Jesus says, uh, the one who rejects me does not receive my words and has a judge. Uh, sorry, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. Similarly, Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's not the case for the unreached person. The unreached person has not rejected Jesus, has not denied Jesus, like he says in John 12 and Matthew 10. They haven't even received the opportunity to reject or deny Jesus. Jesus wasn't harsh on people who didn't know him when he walked around this earth. Actually, the Bible says he had compassion on them. He, he looked at them like they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus only condemned those who knew exactly who he was and who rejected him and, and killed him, crucified him anyway. And so for all those reasons, I want to leave the door open to the possibility that those who have never even heard of Jesus in this life, they could still be saved, that that is God's divine prerogative. And unless God tells me clearly in his word that he's not going to offer them that possibility, which I don't think he has made that clear, then I leave that door open. I can't prove that God's going to give them that opportunity, but I guess I, I, I find myself in the company of someone like John Stott, famous uh, other minority evangelical pastor who, who claimed that he was agnostic on this issue. He didn't know for sure. That's where I'm at. I'm agnostic. I don't know what God does about those who die in ignorance of Jesus, but I hope that he at least gives them the opportunity to, to come to know Jesus and to trust him before uh, damning them forever. <clears throat> but if I'm wrong, and if they go to hell, then uh, we at least have to agree that it will be far less severe for them there. That much is clear from Luke 12, 47 and 48, Matthew 10, verse 15, and other passages, that we will be judged according to what we were entrusted with, for those who grew up in church and grew up in the most reached uh, place in the world, uh, in the history of the world, America, and heard the gospel all the time and were around Christians all the time and had every opportunity to come to saving faith and rejected, 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 denied, 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 it will be much different for those people than for someone who, who never even had the opportunity. Now, the very last thing I'll say here at the end, if you want to disagree with me, if you take the hardline stance on the topic, that all unreached people are by definition destined for hell, then my closing exhortation to you is that you sure as hell, and I mean that quite literally, as sure as you are of hell, being the eternal destination of all those who have never heard the name of Jesus, as, sh as sure as you are of hell, you sure as hell better be radically giving your life away to the cause of reaching those who have never heard of Jesus and, and, and reaching them with the gospel. If you really believe that, if you really believe that 42% of the world alive today is automatically destined for hell, and you are not personally either laying down your life, giving up your cushy life here in the most reached, evangelized country in the history of the world, America, to go far away to reach the unreached, 
or at the very least, if you're not giving 90 plus percent of your annual income away to missionaries who are reaching them, then shame on you. How do you sleep at night? I remember the first time I ever heard uh, the hardline answer to, to this question. I asked the question of my mother when I was probably six or seven years old before bed one night. I said, Mom, what happens to people who die without ever hearing about Jesus? And she replied, they go to hell. And I remember I couldn't sleep that night. And rightfully so. How could I just lay there in my comfortable, uh, gospel-saturated you know, uh, house and, and, and city and school and environment and sleep in peace, in privileged, gospel-privileged peace, knowing that thousands of people would die that night without any chance of eternal life? If you really believe that, then you've got to do something about it. You sure as hell better go do something about it. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Ask the Pastor. Remember that you can ask your questions each week at the info bar at West Hills or by submitting them online through our website at www.westhillsstl.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't yet. And thanks for listening.